everyone. Welcome back to another edition of Brass Bonanza, a Whalers podcast dedicated to keeping the memory of our favorite hockey team alive. My name is Christopher Price. This week's guest, I'm pretty sure this individual is the only person in franchise history to serve as a player, assistant coach, coach, GM, and broadcaster. Larry Plow, he's going to share some great stories with us from his time in Hartford. But first, I want to let you guys know this edition of Brass Bonanza is brought to you by Bet Online. Our partners at Bet Online continue to be the number one source for all your betting needs and sports info. Find all of the latest odds, news, and sports developments, including Major League Baseball, the latest fighting news, and even next season's early NFL futures. With training camp right around the corner, Bet Online has opened up odds for team wins, division futures, and of course, the Super Bowl. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use our promo code BLEAV, that's B-L-E-A-V, to get the bonus and get into the action. Bet online, where the game starts. Now let's get to our conversation with Larry Plow. Larry, thank you so much for joining me today. This is a great honor. And let's, for me, start at the beginning with your relationship with the Whalers. You left really one of the most stable franchises in North American professional sports to become the first player to sign a contract with the New England Whalers. Why did you decide to take that chance? We didn't get the money that the LIV is getting. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think basically... Every league has gone through this, right? With, I mean, it's interesting because golf is finally really going through it now. And it's a little way out of whack. But, I mean, uh, in those days, you know, the AFL, they had theirs in football, baseball, basketball. Mm-hmm. And hockey, I think, really needed it. And I, I was with Montreal. I wasn't playing a lot. I was, uh, you know, a bench warmer. I was injured one year. I was there three years. We won the cup one year. So for me, I wanted to play more and I wanted to make more money. I was making, I think, 12,000 10, 10, 12, my, my second year there on a two-way contract, 12 and 10. And uh, I wasn't playing a lot. So I wanted the chance to play. That's, that's what I wanted to do, you know, and uh, I wasn't going to get it there. I mean, that's where they had those great teams there. And everybody was kind of Lafleur was coming in. Belleville was just leaving. I mean, they had some great, I think they won four or five in a row at that time right after. So for me, it was an opportunity to play. And, uh, you know, before I even signed with them, we had got knocked out by the Rangers, I think on April 12th or 13th uh, that year would be what, 72, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had called Sam Pollock. I had talked with uh, New England, Jack Kelly and Howard Baldwin. And uh, we agreed upon a contract, but I told him that I was going to talk to Mr. Pollock and I still was hoping to stay in the NHL. So I called Mr. Pollock up the night before and I said that, you know, I'd like to stay in the NHL. I know Vancouver and the Islanders were coming in as expansion teams. And I, I really asked him if he would trade me there to one of those teams. I said, I knew other teams had interest in me. And I said, if you're not going to trade me, then I'm going to sign with the WHA. And he said, Larry, let me tell you something. There'll never be a WHA. And if you think you're going to come back to this league, if there is one, then you'll never have that happen either. And he said, I'm not trading you. So I said, Mr. Pollock, I appreciate it, but I'm leaving. I got off the phone, Jack Kelly, um, Howard Baldwin flew up the next morning in a private jet. I've jumped on the jet with my wife and myself, 
back to Boston. We went to the Hotel Sinestra on the, on the Cambridge, uh, on the river, and at the Hotel Sinestra, and I signed a contract with them. So I was publicly the first one signed, mm-hmm. but there had been other guys signed already, but it wasn't announced. They, weren't, they didn't have press conference. I think that was April 14th, 72. How much of the attraction was, as a New England guy, getting a chance to play for a New England team? Well, there was a lot of attractions to come back here. You know, I'd left there when I was 16 in uh, August of 63 to go play for the juniors. And uh, I don't know if you know that story at all. Mm-hmm. It was uh, at the Worcester Hockey School. And uh, the, in those days, all the pros did all the teaching then at these hockey schools because they had to work in the summertime. You weren't, you know, you weren't making a lot of money. So I guess from what... I found out was that they called the Montreal Canadiens up and talked to Frank Selke senior, who was the GM of the Montreal Canadiens then. And he said, you better get down and take a look at this kid. And he's at the Worcester hockey school, but he's playing in a pickup game on Sunday in Lynn mass. So after the game that Sunday, this guy comes up and reintroduces himself as Scotty Bowman. He says, I, I would like to talk to you and your parents. And I said, sure, we can go back to my house. We went back to the house. He offered me, he said, we'd like to sign you to a contract. It's a C form. And I think I got a hundred dollars for it. And the Canadians owned my rights. <laughs> it was August of 63. And I went up and played junior hockey up there for four years. So that's how it all started for me. And I was with Montreal. And then I went in the army for two years, come out, signed pro in 69. So I'd been with them three years. And I wanted to play. I just wanted the chance to play. I was still young and uh, I was only 22. And, um, so I, I, that was my conversation with Mr. Pollock. I can tell you a funny story negotiating with Mr. Pollock after my mm-hmm. second year. Bobby Ewer had been in the league a couple of years and all the salaries were driving up and, and uh, I was making 12,000 two-way contract. So I went in to see him. I didn't have an agent. And uh, he says to me, he looked at me and he said, well, what do you think you're worth? And I said, well, you know, I'm making 12,000. And I think I'm worth 20,000. All the contracts and everything had gone up. There's agents in the business and I was doing it myself. And I said, I, I think I'm worth 20,000. And, and he said, well, let's figure this out. You made 12,000 and uh, with the, with us this year, and you were hurt for quite a bit of the year. You missed three months, came back in the playoffs, you dressed two games. We won the Stanley cup. So you got another 8,000 for that. And you hardly played. She says, I'll tell you what I want you to do. I want you to go home, talk to your wife, reevaluate your ability and come back and see me tomorrow. It's a true story. So I go home, I talk to my wife, Wendy, and I go back to see him tomorrow. And he always chewed a hanky. You know, he sat in the desk. He was chewing a white hanky. Mm-hmm. I walked in, he's chewing the hanky. And he says to me, he says, what'd you do? How, how was it last night? Did you reevaluate your ability? What do you think now? I said, I think the same thing, 20,000. So he looks at me and he says, okay, here's what I'll do for you. I'll give you a two-way contract at at fourteen thousand in the minors, sixteen in the majors, or fifteen in the majors one way. Said so I'll take the fifteen one way in the majors. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I ended up with them in my final year. Then I went on to the WHA, and there was a lot of guys in the same boat. Mm-hmm. They wanted to play more along with make the money. It wasn't, I hate to say it was just the money because it was probably, but it was also a lot of guys didn't play much, you know. Mm-hmm. Like Montreal had three minor league teams in the American League and one in the two in the American League, one in the Central League. So, you know, so it was opportunity. 
What was that first year of the WHA like for you? We've heard all sorts of wild stories, guys not getting paid, games being called off. How did things go from your perspective and the perspective of the players in New England? You know, we were probably we were lucky. Our franchise lasted seven years before the merge. Um, we were never late a check. All our payroll was on, on, on time. Uh, in the first year, they really treated us well. They did extra things to, to make us comfortable. We'll give you, even though they paid the, the meal on a meal day on the road, they gave us meal money too. So they went out of their way to make things very comfortable for the players, knowing they were jumping over from the, from the NHL and they wanted to make things right. And I stayed there all seven years, never missed a paycheck, never was late. I actually started collecting my WHA pension when I was 45 and 75 now. So I started collecting a WHA pension. Ever since I was 45, I get $210 a month <laughs> and 96 cents for life. <laughs> <laughs> so they followed through on their pension, everything. You know, it was not a lot of money, but <laughs> they were really first class. You know, Howard and mm-hmm. the way they run it. And uh, they really wanted to make the guys feel like, hey, this is special. And it was. It seemed like there was a sense of stability there when you talk to players on other teams, players moving from year to year, teams moving, teams folding at the drop of a hat. They didn't really go through, you guys didn't really go through a lot of that there in New England. You know, we don't really probably know what was going on behind the scenes. Probably Howard and his ownership always kept it to themselves. But like I said, they, uh, they, they I, I stayed the whole time. They, they did everything they could to make things right. Uh, we were never late. There was never even talk or something like that. Our playoff money was always on time. You know, the playoff might have been a little bit late sometimes in, in July, early August, but you always got it, you know. So, no, I, I think you know, Howard and Jack and the people who owned it, Bill Barnes in the office, that whole group, and Dave Andrews, they went out of their way to make, make it first class for the players that came into the WHA with us. What was it like playing for Jack Kelly? Jack was a, uh, you know, he was hard, but I always thought he was fair. You know, he liked to yell and holler a little bit, but, you know, I think he really cared about his players in the long run when it was all said and done. I think it was, wasn't an easy adjustment coming from college. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, um, but he, he was a firm coach that had an idea how, you wanted, how he wanted to play, how the team wanted to play. And he got to, he's got his points across. I, I think uh, coming over from college probably hurt him as far as how some people looked at him. You know, you know, you know, college hockey then there was hardly any players in the NHL if there was any. But I thought he handled it really professional. Um, his wife Ginny was always on top of things and tried to make the wives feel good about it and where they were at. And, you know, they did special things uh, the day of the game when we were playing at the old arena down by Northeast. It wasn't the greatest place to walk, you know, so they would make sure the wife's always got taken care of. And so I think Jack and Ginny as a couple did really well as what the whale tried to put, to send the message that it's first class here. And, uh, you know, Jack was a taskmaster, you know, he, he was in his, his way. He, uh, he get excited uh, behind the bench. He ran hard practices, you know, and uh, he always had something to say. It was, uh, I enjoyed him as, as a coach and as a person. And, 
It was new in this league, you know, new in hockey at the at the at the game of the pro, and I don't think he let it be intimidated by that, which was a positive to him. You know, some guys might let let yourself get intimidated. He didn't do that. Um, he was he was ready though. He when he came to work, he was ready and he worked. That first year, it all kind of came together very very nicely for you guys. You guys were the class of the league, the class of the WHA over the course of the regular season, you guys make it all the way to the Avco cup finals. And you told me a story before you had a very interesting way of relaxing before the last game of the Avco cup finals that year. Tell people what you did. Oh, I was rooming with Jimmy Dory. We were roommates quite a bit through the year and I was, I get up early. So I was up early and I said, Jimmy, we got to go fishing. He says, what are you talking about fishing? It's about five in the morning, five 30. We're playing an afternoon game too. We went over to, uh, to uh, Flax Pond, not, not Flax Pond, it's Loose, Loose Pond in Lynn. And we went trout fishing for about an hour, an hour and a half and came back and had breakfast. And, and uh, the game was in the afternoon. We were on TV that day. I ended up getting, I think, three goals in the final game. I think it was a hat. Mm-hmm. We played Bobby Hull's team and uh, the Jets, Winnipeg Jets. But I always, I liked fishing in those days. I did a lot of uh, pond fishing, and uh, especially in Lynn, in the reservoir. Sluice pond, flax pond. But Jimmy uh, came along with me. We got in the car and drove over there, drew the line out. <laughs> you have a remarkable career in New England. It's, you know, to your point, you, you stayed, played seven years in New England. Uh, eventually, you finished up and you have an astonishingly fast ascent through the front office. Looking back, were you surprised at how quickly you went from player to assistant coach to coach to GM? It just seemed to happen in a matter of years. Yeah, it was really crazy. In the real business world, I don't think that happens. <laughs> and actually, I was assistant coach for about a year and a half. And uh, it, w- it was, uh, I-, I had had a, a uh, they found a-, a blood problem with me. So I retired in the mm-hmm. 70, beginning of the 79 year. And then I came back the second half of the year as a player coach with Bill Deneen. Then I retired at the end when they merged. And I went as an assistant coach and 7980. I think that was the first NHL year, 79, mm-hmm. I think. And then uh, second year started, I was assistant to Don Blackburn. And then by the three-quarter point of the uh, season, they fired uh, Don Blackburn and Jack Kelly uh, called me in. He said that we we're going to make you coach. And I think I signed like a couple year, a two-year contract. And for the two years plus the rest of the year, and it was 10 games later, Howard Baldwin called me in and said, Larry, we're going to fire Jack. We're going to make you GM and coach. I was 31 years old, had no idea what the fuck I was doing. Because you always, as a player, you know, you really think you know what you're doing because you say, oh, I'd do this, I would do that. But you find out pretty quick, all those I would do this and I would do that. I, not really what it's about. So I was young and I was a coach and GM and, had a beard, and uh, in those days, I think I was making one hundred twenty-five thousand. <laughs> <laughs> Today, you'd be paid four million for that. <laughs> so it was, it was crazy. It was, uh, hey, you're not going to refuse it. Was I ready for it? No, I mean, but who would be ready at thirty-one mm-hmm. years old? So if you do something like that, then you got to give them time. I, I, I think we got about a year into it, and then they year and a half, two years into it, and about a year and a half, and then Howard came up and, and gave me another two years on my contract, so I ended up getting four years on it, and then they brought Emil Francis in. 
And Emil kept me on as an assistant GM with him. And I always wanted to coach. And uh, so at the end of the year, at the beginning of the year, I just, he said, just go out and learn the business, go out and scout. And I went out and I watched juniors. I watched the pros. At the end of the year, he came to me. He says, Larry, what do you want to do? I said, I'd love to coach. He says, I got the availability to get down into uh, the minor league in Binghamton and coach in America. I said, hey, that's what I'd love to do it. So I went down there, you know, after being coach and GM. And I think that was really good for me, you know, to, get, to kind of start out, learn the business more. And so it was quite an experience. The 81 draft. It appears you guys are poised to select Bobby Carpenter. Can't miss kid, cover Sports Illustrated, the next great American hockey player. But there were a series of events that ultimately forced you guys to go in another direction. You, we, we've talked about this story before, but I'd be fascinated to kind of hear it from you once again, the process that led you guys to select Ron Francis. Yeah, we were, uh, at that time, I know Howard and the ownership were talking about a cable channel in the New England area. And uh, everybody felt that, you know, Carpenter would be a great pick because the local channel starts up, Bobby Carpenter, the whole ball of wax, local kid. Um, Bill Deneen was our scout. And he had them both like A and 1A and 1B. He had Francis 1A. He loved Francis. And uh, so basically we were going to draft Carpenter. And we were picking, I think, four. And uh, Max McNabb was picking five. He was with Washington, and Colorado was in front of me. And Max came to me at the draft table. And, and this is where, you know, we all, we all run drafts, and we all think we're so smart, right? <laughs> Sometimes it's not what you do. It's what happens around you. Uh-huh. So Max came to me, and he said, Larry, um, we're going to make a trade, jump in front of you with Colorado. And we're going to take Carpenter unless you do something with me. And I said, Max, let me, and he showed me his list. He had, they had Carpenter one and Francis one uh, B. So I said, look at Max, I'm going to tell you something. You go and take whoever you want. I'll take, I'm going to take who's left. I'm not moving. So he jumped over me, took Carpenter. We took Francis. <laughs> That's exactly how it happened. Carpenter was sitting at our table, the father. I don't know how he was sitting there. Mm-hmm. So we got down from the crowd into the, onto the table because he was reading everything and thought, you know, we met the family and everything and everybody thought we were going to take him, which we would have. And uh, all of a sudden I hear this bang at the end of the table when they announced Ronnie, Fran- uh, when they announced Carpenter to, uh, to uh, Washington and it's his father jumps up and walks out and was all upset. And, uh, to this day, I still don't know how we get down there. <laughs> You need a you need a potential to get down there, but anyways, that's how it happened. They took they took uh, uh, Carpenter. We took um, Francis, and the rest is history. I think he's the third leading scorer in the game. So mm-hmm. it wasn't like we were the smartest draft that year. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> when it came to Ronnie, you you and Howard were at odds as to how to start how to handle the start of his career. Yes, yeah, we were. Well, I think everybody wanted Ronnie to stay. And I was always a believer that, you know, you don't want to push these kids along. And I didn't keep Ronnie. I sent him back to the Sioux. He was playing for Sioux St. Marie. He was from the Sioux. So he was home, staying at home. I felt he wasn't ready to play. And maybe even more than wasn't ready was just a, 
you know, I just felt he's too young. You know, let's, let's give him some time. Mm-hmm. So he went back there. We were playing in Buffalo and he was playing in Niagara Falls for the Sioux that night. This was in November sometime, probably just before Thanksgiving. So the night before our game, they were playing over this. So I went over to watch Ronnie play and uh, he played really well, looked really good. And uh, we had some injuries. So I brought him back to Buffalo with me so we could play that night. And uh, after the game, I said to him, we're going to keep you. And uh, he stayed. I think he had 68 points and, uh, you know, was up for rookie of the year. I told him at the end of the year, I said, I probably fucked it up for you. If I had kept you, you probably would have won rookie of the year. (laughs) But a funny story with that, too, is um, his mother called me about a week later, two weeks later. Wonderful family. You know, they really Mm -hmm. were a wonderful family. And uh, she called me. I can still remember the call. And. And uh, she said, she said, Larry, I want to tell you something. You know, when you send him back, it was the right thing. He wasn't ready to stay. He is now, mm-hmm. you know, off the ice mentally. And uh, he, you know, he went on and had a great, you know, great career. So again, you know, who the hell knows, you know, these kids who you think one thing, but some, you think so many kids, you, when you look at the kids, you say, oh, these guys are going to play. And then some of the kids say, I'm going to play. And all of a sudden it's the opposite way. But, you know, Ronnie was a fantastic person. He was a great player. I mean, he, he fit in with good players so well, you know, and he could do anything. You know, he was a coach's dream. and he, he worked hard. He could play in the power play, kill penalties, and play against the team's top players. So, I mean, that's you can't ask any more from a player. You, you talked about your growth process as a GM and a coach and – kind of tying that together with the growth of the franchise, you would still go on to preside over some of the most impressive drafts in franchise history. 81, you got Ronnie, you got Paul McDermott. 82, it was Lawless, Deneen, Ulf Samuelson, and Ray Ferraro. 83, yeah. it was Sly Turgeon. Yeah. Now, those years with the big club, the wins and losses weren't probably where you'd like them to be, but the building toward the greatness of the, you know, the mid to late 80s was was fairly evident. How tough was it to remind people, to remind the media, to remind the fan base, look, better days are coming. These guys are going to pay off down the road. Yeah. That that's a it's a hard sell, you know. That it's always a hard sell, but you got to stick with your belief. And the, and I think the ownership was, uh, you know, it was tough for them to, to buy that too, you know. And the, they felt they wanted somebody more with more experience. That's when they brought Emil in. But we had some really good drafts. I mean, really good drafts. I mean, we. Uh, we actually played okay for, you know, for where we were in that, in the league at that time, mm-hmm. but it's not an easy sell. you got to stick with it. And you got to have the ownership and everybody behind you because it's, you know, it's you're out in the public and if uh, things aren't going well, then that's who they're looking to. And, and you've got to absorb it. That's, that's for sure. We, we had some good years, but you know, we had some good pieces and I think they came in and ended up, developing and had some great years there mm-hmm. Dean and all those guys they they fairly played well in that division got in the playoffs and so to see that type of success I was you know really happy with that even though I wasn't the GM at the time but my career was good because I moved on to what my age was too young to be there mm-hmm. and then I got a chance to coach and I came back there and I think 88 we talk about the greatness of Ron Francis and what he meant to the franchise I I'll also put out there that look Kevin Deneen kind of gets overlooked a little bit because Ron Francis does cast such a long shadow. Yeah. With Deneen, 
what caused you guys to go out and get him, go out and draft him? I know his father was obviously Bill Deneen, and I don't know yeah. if that played a role, but what was it about Deneen that attracted you to him as a prospect? Well, he was he was a dog on the bone. You know, he just played so hard all the time. He wasn't big, but he played big. He could score. He made things happen. Uh, he, he was a momentum changer in the game. He, he played on the inside. He played hard hockey. He's just what you needed. You know, you, you needed that. You had a guy like Ronnie who played center and was smart and played in a lot of situations. We needed somebody with the energy and the emotion that could add emotion, energy, uh, physical play to the team and work ethic. And he, he was all that. Plus he could play. I mean, he had, he could score. He could make plays. Uh, he, he was a perfect fit for what we had at that time. And his father, we just made sure basically that his dad was okay drafting him. His dad was running the draft. And I just made sure that I said, Billy Fox, you, you, you know, we want your kid. Are you, you okay with that? And he said, no, that's fine. That's a, you know, we'll take him in the third round. We'll, we'll get him in the third round. After all those tough years, you know, the 81, 82, 83, 84, was there a level of gratification on your part when the team broke through 85, 86, 87 with so many of the players that you had a hand in drafting? Oh yeah. Yeah. A lot of satisfaction to see that. And I think that helped me when I had a chance to, uh, you know, I moved on to the Rangers Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think 88, I went back in there and coached and then they made ownership changes and they fired myself. They fired Emil Francis. I think Eddie Johnson came in then and Ricky mm-hmm. Lee. So it was really satisfying seeing the success in those middle 80 years. And I think that had a lot to do with when I moved on to the Rangers as the assistant GM and vice president in hockey ops. And I was there eight years. So, and then I think that follows you right along. Cause then when I interviewed, for the St. Louis job, I ended up getting the St. Louis job. The one thing they always brought up was all the, the drafts we we drafted way back in, uh, in in Hartford. And when I went to St. Louis, they were they wanted to go to that rebuild mode. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think all that really I got a, I got a piece of that by the past history because it kind of came along with me. You leave in 1989 after really a remarkable run, almost 20 years with the same organization. I, I'm fairly certain. You were the only guy in franchise history to serve as a player, assistant coach, coach, GM, and broadcaster. That's right. I did radio and TV. First hockey game on ESPN with Sam uh, Rosen. Wow. We we did the opening of the Harvard Arena. You got to look this one up. And we played the U.S. Olympic team that year. And Sam and I, he did the play-by-play and I did the color. I think that was the first hockey game on ESPN. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty damn close to that. I did some ESPN games, and then I did some Whaler games with uh, uh, Bobby Newmeyer and a little bit with Chuck Caton, I think, maybe, too. Yep. So No, I did a little bit of everything, and then when I got fired, the, the reporters down there asked me, did they offer you a job? I said, price sake. I mean, I've had every job. They couldn't offer me a new job. <laughs> well, I, I think you can answer this question probably better than most. What for you is the ultimate legacy of the Whalers franchise? Oh boy. The logo is, is, it just held its own. I mean, if you go back in the NHL and watch what sells and the, the logo was fantastic. The original one, you know, with the, the whale and the, it goes, it goes back, you know, it's uh, and, and I think we, you know, we, we played all seven years. We went to the, through the merger I think probably that they still talk about the logo now. 
And they still do. They'll talk about how the sales were this year against other clubs, and it's still surviving. People are buying, and there's still a pretty good booster club there in, in Hartford. The alumni go in there every every summer. And... It's interesting that they seem to have a hold over hockey fans with a logo, with a song, the, the fact that the booster club still exists, that a lot of other teams that are no longer present, they, they, they might not necessarily have that same kind of hold on the fan base. No, they don't. They've always have had a hold on it. I think there's always been talk about a team going in there. You know, it, it's like you say, there's a booster club there. They have something every summer that's just WHA, NHL, Whalers. It, it's always been there. And I think it'll be there forever. I, I think that logo is going to continue to grow and sell, sell itself and, the city was great. The people were great. You know, they wanted hockey. We had the roof fall in. We had a lot of things happen. I can remember that night where Harry Neal called me. I was injured at home. Harry called me about one o'clock. He says, uh, I said, Harry, what, what are you doing? He says, oh, they were in Vancouver or something. He says, oh, you know what happened? I said, I don't know what happened. I just woke up. You woke me up. It's about one o'clock, Harry. <laughs> but he says, the roof fell. I said, what roof? Not my roof. I said, my roof is still up here, Harry. No, no. He says, the rink fell in. Come on, Harry. I turned the TV on right after the basketball game. Harry was always a character. Was, a lot was, of good characters there, you know, too. In the, yep. in, in the game, coaches and Jack Evans, Emil Francis, Billy Deneen, Jack Kelly, Ron Ryan. You know, they had to, Tommy Webster, Brad Selwood, Jimmy Dore. They had some good to Al Smith. Al Smith walked off. Remember, he walked off in Buffalo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he left. A lot of uh, good memories there. We had a good time. Last last thing from me, Larry, for those people who might not be aware, tell folks what you're doing these days. I worked for St. Louis for 24 years. Full-time, I was GM for, what, 13, 14 years, and I stayed on part-time just helping them out. And I always loved the amateur side, so I stayed and helped them. And now I'm uh, out in Arizona. The GM out there, Bill Armstrong, I brought him into St. Louis years ago. He ended up being the head of the amateur scouting there. And I stayed on and Bill, uh, Doug had asked me to stay on for a year and help Billy get started because he was taking it over. So that was, I stayed for 10 years instead of one. And then when he went out to Arizona, he asked me if I'd come out as a senior advisor. So I've been helping them on this, as a senior advisor. They're going through a real, which is a lot different than most clubs have ever done. I mean, I don't think, I don't think a team has ever, after being in the city for 15 years and being so established have said, we're going to start out fresh. We want to rebuild like you would rebuild, a, like it's an expansion franchise. And that's what they're doing. And they're involved in getting a new building. Uh, they want to move uh, to Tampa, just as outside of Phoenix, which is a great young spot, a lot of growth out there. So I'm, uh, I've been a year with them, got another year to go and uh, enjoying myself. Sounds good, Larry. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Here on the Brass Bonanza podcast, we say this is the podcast that helps keep the memory of our favorite hockey team alive. So thank you for doing your part, and hopefully we can hook this up again somewhere down the road very, very soon. Thank you, Chris. Great. Thank you.